Welcome, welcome everybody for joining this uh, CBRL webinar. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, when we talk about moderation in contemporary Jordan with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hughes from the University of Exeter and Dr. Philip Proudford from the University of Bath. Jeffrey Hughes is lecturer in anthropology at the University of Exeter. His research explores how those living in the Middle East draw upon their own traditions as well as globally circulating technologies and discourses to remake the world around them. And his first book, Affection and Mercy, Kinship, Islam and the Politics of Marriage in Jordan, is due to be published next year with Indiana Press. And it draws on two years of ethnographic fieldwork in Jordan. Um, more recently, um, and currently, he's been studying how blood feuds are increasingly moving onto social media and how a politics of accusation has become an increasingly prevalent dimension of global social imaginaries. Um, Dr. Philip Proudfoot is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Bath. Previously, he was with us in, at CBRL in Amman as assistant director. His background is in political anthropology, and he's a specialist in Syria and Lebanon. Um, he's currently working on a book manuscript too, due out soon, that describes the lives of Syrian migrant laborers in Beirut during the Syrian uprising and civil war. The subject of his postdoctoral fellowship, British Academy sponsored postdoctoral research fellowship is looking at activist humanitarians responding to the European refugee crisis. It's a very great pleasure to hand over to uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hughes. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Introduction, Carol. Uh, so uh, today I'm going to be talking to you briefly, I guess, about my research. I'm going to begin by telling you how I got into the topic of moderation uh, before giving you a little bit of a sense of uh, the research design, what I found, and some of my, my questions moving forward. Uh, but I'm going to try to do this in a somewhat brief manner because I'd really like to get more of a conversation going, uh, both with, with uh, Philip, uh, who I'll be talking to in a second after I finish uh, my presentation, uh, but also with the audience. And I've been looking, uh, and there's obviously a lot of very uh, smart and erudite people who are in the audience. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to hearing what all of you have to say, especially those of you who have influenced the development of this project. Uh, I very much thank you for both coming and also for your previous uh, help on, on all of this. Uh, so to start with, I think I wanna give you a sense of who I am, where I come from, and how I got interested in the topic of moderation. Um, I first came to Jordan, not necessarily as a researcher so much, but as a Peace Corps volunteer. And for those of you who aren't an American, this is a sort of a 1960s era artifact of sort of American uh, optimism, the idea that you could send college graduates with no particular skill set into the so-called developing world and that they would somehow through sheer can-do spirit be able to transform uh, the societies that they interacted with. Uh, and while I don't think that I necessarily benefited any of the people that I, I worked with, it certainly had a profound impact on me uh, and it made me want to learn a lot more about Jordanian culture and society. Uh, and part of this, of course, involved uh, the increasing uh, way in which the discourse of terrorism, uh, Irhab in the, in the local parlance, was transformed over time uh, into a language of extremism 
that became increasingly ubiquitous, especially during the war with the so-called Islamic State. Um, and this wasn't necessarily my initial focus. Uh, if anything, my, my early work was focused on marriage, in fact. Uh, but over time, uh, as this discourse uh, pervaded life uh, in Jordan, but also in a lot of ways as the discourse of moderation has become more prominent in the West as well, it seemed like a potentially fruitful avenue for further investigation. Um, but what really, I think, piqued my interest was the work of uh, Jillian Schwedler, uh, who's a longtime uh, observer of Jordan, who's written some very interesting books, um, particularly Faith and Moderation, uh, where she develops uh, an analysis of uh, the so-called moderation inclusion hypothesis regarding uh, the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, involvement in politics in Jordan uh, and Yemen. Uh, but even more so in a review article she wrote entitled, Can Islamists Become Moderates? Uh, what I found particularly interesting about this review uh, was how she showed how the concept of moderation had basically moved in political science from something that initially emerged in debates about whether communists could be included and, and socialists more generally could be included in the democratic process in Europe. Uh, and in the post-Cold War era was sort of transformed into a discourse about whether Islamists could be included in uh, the political uh, system in the Middle East. Um, and yet there's a sort of a profound irony that I saw at the center of her review article, uh, which is that despite all of this talk of moderation and a, a you know, sort of veritable spilling of ink over the topic, uh, there was actually very little agreement amongst different political scientists about what they meant by moderation. The concept was seen to be somehow self-evident, and yet there was a lot of disagreement among different political scientists about what the concept actually meant. In fact, a lot of them were mutually incompatible. For instance, if you take it to mean uh, moderation is a respect for democracy, uh, but you know, most of the society is, is illiberal, uh, then you can't very well say that moderation requires a, a respect for liberal democracy without finding yourself in some very confusing contradictions. Um, and so I, I, I sort of projected this back onto my previous experiences in Jordan, but I also began to uh, think about this uh, in terms of the ways in which uh, discourse was unfolding online uh, and obviously in the West as well, where the concept of moderation also has a certain purchase even in Western politics itself. Uh, and this led me to try and design a project around really getting at what this value of moderation meant, um, not just to sort of elites and, and sort of policy thinkers and certainly not just to Western uh, commentators, but to everyday people, you know, the sort of people that I had uh, come to interact with when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in a small village in Jordan. Um, it was this sort of uh, uh, world that I wanted to really understand and how a concept of moderation, uh, which had initially sort of been viewed with uh, as, as a sort of a quotidian sort of thing, uh, you know, you might refer to someone as being motadil or, you know, sort of a moderate person and not have a very sort of uh, particular meaning, had become increasingly politicized. Uh, the concept of extremism or tatarrafa uh, had gone from being something that was uh, a bit concerning, a bit something that wasn't uh, necessarily like people preferred the term mutashadid uh, because it seemed less pejorative to them. It didn't have that tinge of illegitimacy to it. Uh, but over time, there was a sort of an embrace of this concept of uh, moderation and extremism and the sort of language of moderation and extremism. And I wanted to understand how that had happened and how that was actually transforming life, um, not just uh, politically at the national level, but even in interpersonal interactions. So 
a big part of this was to be aware of uh, powerful institutional actors that drive these sorts of considerations. You know, I didn't fall off the back of a turnip truck. I'm very aware that this is a, a sort of a political project, as you'll see in a second, uh, that has been promoted by the Jordanian government and obviously a lot of Western governments as well for very particular ends. Um, so this meant that I would need to engage with groups like the Ministry of Religious Endowments. Um, Another group that's been very interested in the concept of moderation for decades, actually, as we'll, we'll discuss in a second, is the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which po puts, points to a sort of an interesting um, sort of tension in the concept that it can be used both by the government, but also by uh, the opposition as well. Uh, I also knew that I'd need to interact with the media, another pillar of uh, modern society that's very important in disseminating ideas in general, and one that has likewise been very interested in this concept of moderation as well. I would also, of course, have to interact to some degree with the security apparatus, another uh, site in which the concepts of moderation and extremism are contested and defined. Uh, and of course, the liberal NGO sector, which has led to a sort of cottage industry in countering violence extremism, as the saying goes, uh, and a whole wealth of trainings and workshops and organizations and activities that are designed to somehow promote some notion of moderation, though what this is may often be radically different uh, from the perspective of the funders of this uh, sort of programming than the people who are actually implementing it, much less the people who are actually uh, the supposed beneficiaries. Uh, and finally, I would be interested in looking at the Hirak or the opposition movement, uh, a sort of uh, a more uh, secular uh, sort of opposition in Jordan uh, that also might have some, some things to say about uh, the, the concept of moderation. Um, but very, very, very sort of concretely, because after all, I'm an anthropologist, I wanted to be sure that I wasn't just existing at the level of documents and discourse and, and sort of floating on outer space. I wanted to remain grounded in communities, maybe not necessarily focusing my fieldwork on a small village the way I had in previous work, uh, but certainly being aware of the way in which these sorts of debates are unfolding in particular places involving particular institutions and social actors. Uh, so rich sources of data for this sort of project would come from things like Friday sermons, uh, which are now standardized by the Ministry of Religious Endowments across the country to promote a more moderate uh, way of looking at things. Uh, it would also have to uh, unfold by looking at things like lectures and seminars, uh, either put on by uh, these sorts of uh, NGOs uh, or organized by uh, educational institutions. Reading groups would be another place where people would struggle with the sort of ethical dilemmas around moderation. Also trainings, political meetings, uh, informal conversations, and uh, somewhat uh, sort of contra controversially perhaps or some uh, uh, atypically for anthropology and ethnography by reading books. Uh, you know, that it's because uh, it's not necessarily true that everybody who embraces the discourse of moderation is hyper-literate. Many of the people who promote this discourse are in fact hyper-literate. So it's very important for me uh, as a researcher to also sort of engage with the topic through the various forms of knowledge production and, and uh, that uh, the, the sort of these people engage with themselves. So as you might expect, Jordan is a very diverse society. It's a very connected society. There's people from all over the world, uh, you know, who uh, come through Jordan, Jordanians go all over the world. Uh, there's a very lively trade in books from all over the world. There's a, you know, sort of, uh, biographies of Che Guevara can sit alongside exegesis of the Quran uh, and uh, biographies of Stephen uh, Jobs, and that's just fine. Uh, and so I would have to somehow understand what moderation meant uh, 
to, to the whole sort of sweep of Jordanian society, uh, mobilizing myself and moving between these institutions, but also trying to make some more general uh, conclusions about what moderation means, where the concept comes from, uh, and, and what it means to people today. So my big finding and my sort of my, my thesis here is that moderation is both more and less intrinsic to Islam than I thought. Uh, and I'll try to explain what I mean in a very precise way by this, because I think it could be taken the wrong way. Um, so uh, I think in a very basic sense, there's this idea of using a spatial metaphor for making a normative judgment about orthodoxy uh, and deviance from it uh, that definitely has a long and very sort of uh, well-documented genealogy in Islam. And I think there's also a very obvious way in which there's a tendency to want to problematize how individual ethical choices impact wider choices of the political community. Um, and I think I would add alongside these that there is generally an understanding in Islam uh, that one should not be, be sort of overly pious. And there's a plenty of hadiths that can uh, relate this that, that are sort of pretty well attested to. Uh, but what I, what I found was not atypical, and this is where I mean that it's both more and less intrinsic to Islam than I thought, uh, is that there's also a way in which there's a sort of in, an invention of tradition that's happening uh, alongside these specific terms that I referred to in the beginning, especially Artadal, and Wasatia, which are these sort of key concepts that have emerged, especially in recent years, to describe a new way of thinking about what we in English know as moderation, uh, that are sort of much less well attested to. Uh, so for one thing, there's this sort of association with Muslim Brotherhood and its attempts to maintain internal ideological coherence. Um, obviously, that's not going to be something going back to the uh, origins of Islam, because it's something that's very much a product of a modern political movement. There's also this connection to the West, and particularly this connection to a very aggressive countering violent extremism agenda that has emerged in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, and finally, I think there's a specifically interesting phenomenon here. Uh, we could probably make some pretty obvious assumptions about how this is tied to the nature of uh, global capitalism, which is an intense focus on consumption and especially dress and personal grooming as somehow uh, key to the concept of moderation, uh, which I, I don't see reflected in earlier discourses around these issues. Um, so in what follows, I'm going to try and talk you through a sort of a genealogy of the concept of moderation and the way in which it has been sort of uh, grafted onto uh, basically 7th and 8th century pol uh, uh, political religious discourses um, in a very interesting way that both draws out some of the uh, initial assumptions and conceits of those discourses, but also diverges in some other important ways. So perhaps the most uh, commonly, uh, you know, sort of uh, attested way in which people would epitomize uh, Islam's embrace of the concept of, Islam, of uh, moderation or wasatiyah in the present day uh, is a short snippet of the Quran uh, that can be, that we can quote as uh, right? So this idea that we created you as a, and I'll, I'll get to this in a second, but the question immediately arises about whether we should go back to uh, the seventh century to understand what's going on here, or whether we should really be going back to 2004 and the emergence of something called the Amman message, which is a sort of an ideological project of the Jordanian government to specifically promote an idea of a moderate form of Islam and to try and put Jordan and the Hashemite kingdom at the center of that discourse as sort of guardians of that particular moderate notion of Islam. Uh, so when they talk about uh, uh, 
we immediately have to ask ourselves, well, what does wasatan actually mean in this sort of co context? Uh, and if you look at just a sort of, a, I've just taken a, a sampling of the many translations of the Quran, uh, you can already see how there are a lot of different ways of taking this, right? Uh, so you have, for instance, Dr. Ghali uh, translating it as, thus, uh, we made you a middle nation to be witnesses over mankind. Uh, the Sahih International, however, translated as, uh, and thus we have made you a just community that you will be witness over the people. Uh, the Mufti Taqi Usmani translation says, in the same way we made you a moderate ummah or community uh, so that you would be uh, watch over other people. Uh, and Dr. Musafa Khattab, uh, and so we made you believers, an upright community, so that you may be witnesses over humanity. Now, I don't want to bore you too much with semantics, but this is actually very importantly a matter of semantics on some level. Uh, at the same time, though, if, as we look at the broader, uh, the broader quote and the broader context of what it quickly becomes apparent that this is in some ways being taken out of context and in other ways actually is speaking to something more fundamental in the faith. So if we look at the verse in context, and here I'm just relying on the Sahih International Translation, and thus we have made you a just community that you will be witnesses over the people and the messenger will be witnesses over you. And we did not make the Qibla, this is the sort of the, uh, the direction when you face when you pray, uh, except that we might make you evident uh, who would follow the messenger from who would turn back on his heels. And indeed, it is difficult except for those whom Allah has guided. And never would Allah have caused you to lose your faith. Indeed, Allah is to the people kind and merciful. So what I think is striking about that is you take one of the most central aspects of Islamic de devotion, this idea of praying towards the Qibla, and the way in which this becomes crucially about a sort of a centrism or moderation or a, a sort of being a people of the middle, if you will, uh, but very much in the frame of ritual practice, not necessarily about ethics, certainly not really clearly about politics in a straightforward way, though, of course, I think the idea of praying in a particular direction obviously does have some pretty key political uh, ramifications to it, although we might not want to lean too heavily on this language of politics as being a distinct sphere of life. Um, and in a lot of my reading about this matter, and especially here, I think that the, the booksellers of downtown Amman were, were especially useful to me, or especially sort of interesting interlocutors, um, there's actually a, a sort of an interesting precedent to all of this. Uh, and one of the most interesting books on this matter that I found uh, was by Dr. Uh, Sumir Katani. Uh, who discussed a very interesting uh, sort of genealogy of what he called alul, or uh, commonly glossed as justice, uh, where he sort of traced it back to uh, an earlier concept, an earlier discourse of adab, which today means something like literature or politess, uh, and originated in a genre of literature, uh, mostly Persianate, uh, that was called Mirrors for Princes. Um, if you've ever read Machiavelli's The Prince, uh, this would be a sort of a European domestication of that literature. These were intended as manuals in statecraft for young elites. Uh, and what uh, Dr. Katani argues in his, uh, in his exegesis of these 40 uh, hadiths about uh, justice or adl, uh, is that this concept of justice, which itself uh, shares a root with ertadal or moderation or balancedness or justness or uprightness, uh, is that there's this sense in which it originally meant straightness or balance, but has increasingly come to mean justice. And what Dr. Katani argues is that there's a sort of a similar semantic creep that recurs 
as the concept of Agul becomes uh, to mean that the ruler governing himself and his family properly uh, will make him govern his realm properly and in turn ensure that the proper self-governance of his people and their families occurs in its stead. Uh, and if there are sort of shades of Michel Foucault and governmentality in all of this, I doubt that that's incidental, although that's not a sort of a key interlocutor for Dr. Katani. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of, uh, to be read, you know, there's a lot of literature on this, the, the sort of the discourse in uh, Jordan currently around moderation is wide and deep, uh, and I found plenty of things to read about. Uh, but I wanted to sort of emphasize in particular how, uh, especially the people I talked to, were constantly reframing my interest in moderation through a series of er earlier political and theological debates uh, that they saw as crucial to my understanding the contemporary one. Uh, so, for instance, um, and this is something that came directly from the monarchy, there was this idea of uh, the Kharajites as a sort of an early example of what happens when Muslims fail to be moderate. So these are supporters of the Prophet's nephew uh, and, and his claim to the Caliphate who later rebelled against him uh, for his lack of zeal. Uh, and based on the, uh, the sort of the, the, the opinion of the current king, uh, who's much, who's uh, commonly compared uh, the uh, so-called Islamic State, calling them Khawaraj al-Asr or modern-day Kharajites, uh, there's this idea in which uh, similarly this sort of uh, excessive zeal has been a long-term uh, sort of bugbear for the, uh, uh, the sort of uh, Islamic community. Uh, and another constant uh, reference point in all of this was the Mu'tazilites, again uh, from a root meaning to withdraw or to pull back from, uh, and this is a group associated with its attempt to combine the dialectical methods of Greek philosophy with Islam. Um, but this concept of moderation, uh, obviously, while it may have a somewhat dodgy uh, genealogy into early Quranic sources and early Islamic sources, uh, it certainly does have uh, a uh, genealogy that long predates an intensive Western interest in these sorts of matters. And this is something that I hadn't necessarily expected when I start out uh, looking for this. Um, so the, uh, the concept was taken up very vociferously actually in the 1980s by the Muslim Brotherhood itself. And this seems to have largely been in response to uh, various splinter groups uh, that broke off claiming that the Brotherhood was not sufficiently uh, pushing its, its, uh, uh, its interests against uh, central governments. Uh, one of the most famous was a group called the, uh, the Brotherhood of Muslims, or more, more commonly known uh, in the press as Takfir wa Hijra, or Excommunication and Retreat from the World. And you can see in many ways uh, Yusuf al-Qaradawi's classic Al-Sahwa uh, al-Islamiya, Al-Jadud wa Al-Tatarraf, as a sort of a reaction against this, although he doesn't name them uh, per se. Uh, and what he argues in this book is basically that Islam itself is a, obviously a very moderate religion. And he, and he claims that uh, the tendency in Islam that he represents anyway is going to have to be concerned with, uh, Islam, uh, with moderation as a key value. Now, what's interesting, I think, about the way in which he does this is that already we see this blending, again, of the, the sort of the ethical and the political in some really important ways. So it's very important, for instance, that he not address the actual target of his critique, but only very obliquely, right? That one shouldn't directly critique others, that one certainly shouldn't be directly accusing other Muslims of unbelief. Uh, and that in fact, this is a sort of a central paradox in, 
uh, a lot of his writing, that you have to somehow correct improper belief without necessarily accusing people of being unbelievers, which is, of course, a, a sort of a delicate tightrope to walk. Uh, now, another way in which uh, the discourse of moderation, I think, has really evolved and changed over time is precisely in the way in which it has come to focus on the body and on particular consumption patterns. Um, and so I think that there's a, a particular way in which the beard has become a symbol of uh, extremism and the absence of a beard, a symbol of moderation, uh, which was another thing that I thought was very striking and shows, I think, more generally how the concept of moderation is in a lot of ways very devoid of meaning and very easy to sort of uh, deploy in, in any way that one wishes. So, of course, there's the, uh, as you can see in the bottom corner, there's more of a sort of a Salafi style beard which has come to be associated with extremism. And then you can see one of my interlocutors, uh, Mahmoud Tualba, uh, from the Ministry of Religious Endowments with his very shortly cropped beer, beard, which is seen as more moderate and is seen as, as not necessarily implying that one has dangerous commitments that need to be policed. Uh, this can go in actually in quite humorous directions, though, because uh, in, in, um, in the case, for instance, of uh, one friend that I had, uh, who had gone to uh, the Emirates to work, uh, gotten interested in becoming what he called a hipster, come back with a long beard, which consistently terrified all of his family members, led to really intense uh, concern from his mother in particular, who kept begging him to shave it off. But as he said, I'm having fun with my beard. So this play of symbols and these ways in which these empty signifiers come to be so loaded with meaning and, and sort of to you know, sort of express deeply held ethical or political commitments uh, is I think something that's particularly interesting about this phenomenon and worthy of, of note. Um, and of course, I think the final way in which this new discourse of moderation is uh, inherently going to be divorced from uh, older ideas of moderation that are obviously present in Islam in, in a whole range of ways uh, is through the intensive focus on the West, in, in particular, this uh, sort of huge industry that has emerged uh, in the so-called countering violence extremism sort of um, it's a, it's a very sort of uh, uh, co common thing. It's something that's been, become very central to both the United Nations efforts in Jordan to USAID. Uh, some of my interlocutors told me about, you know, sort of the immense amounts of money that are spent on hotel rooms and food and per diems, uh, this whole sort of political economy that's grown up around these conferences and workshops and events, a whole sort of career trajectory that takes young uh, sort of promising leaders and, and sort of um, allows them to experience all of this hospitality, but then obviously uh, because of the focus on youth and the nature of the, uh, the employment trajectory also is a sort of very steep pyramid in terms of jobs and, and often leaves people a little bit unsure of what to do with themselves once they get to be in their 30s or 40s. Um, but more generally, we also, I think, uh, very interestingly, see the importation in a lot of ways of uh, this discourse has been developed in a lot of ways by uh, Middle Eastern regimes, both in Jordan and elsewhere, back into the West. And so we see this both uh, through the UK prevent strategy, uh, but also, of course, through uh, increasing emphasis on countering violent extremism in the United States as well. Uh, there's a very interesting report recently from the Brennan Center at NYU uh, that looks at uh, the, the sort of the intensive focus of countering violent extremism grants on uh, Muslims, but also on African Americans in particular, uh, and just the sheer quantities of money that are now being spent on this uh, in the US, uh, which seems to have gone up to over 2 million under Trump. 
So um, I don't want to sort of go on for too much longer. I'd much, I hope that this has been somewhat illuminating and that we can maybe go more in depth on questions. Uh, currently, I'm a little bit unsure about where to take this research. I think that there's definitely uh, something to be said about this, this way in which this concept of moderation circulates between uh, the, the US, Britain, Jordan, and other Middle Eastern countries, the way in which this is a discourse that isn't just being imposed from the West, uh, and in fact, actually, in some ways, I think there's evidence that, um, if anything, there's actually an, an, an importation in some ways of uh, Muslim and Middle Eastern concepts of moderation into the West happening now, which I think is very interesting. Uh, but I think I have to temper some of my enthusiasm for all of this research with the realization uh, that especially at this current moment, uh, the discourse of moderation is not very, very much to be seen. You know, the sort of the emergence of the pandemic uh, the sort of the ubiquity of COVID-19 discourse has really pushed a lot of these discussions, at least out of my consciousness and off of my radar. So I've been trying to follow up on this stuff. Um, but uh, in some ways, I'm a little worried that this, I may be doing a sort of a salvage ethnography of the world as it existed six months ago. Uh, whereas now, uh, even if the discourse of moderation comes back, it's going to come back much more in a framework of biosecurity uh, and um, be shaped in a lot of ways by the increasing uh, political imperative and uh, to manage populations, not necessarily around the fear of terrorism, so much as around this fear of epidemic infection. Uh, and I'm not necessarily sure how that will work, or even if moderation, uh, and especially not these words, Iltidal and Wasatia, will figure prominently in those discussions. Um, but I guess only time will tell. And the fact that you're uh, taking time out of your day to come here implies that there is some interest uh, and that I should push forward with this on some level. And I'd be very interested to hear uh, what you think is useful about this research and how I could uh, make it better, better meet your needs and, and, and answer your questions. So thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Jeff. That was, uh, that was an excellent talk. And I think that um, some of the things you did like really well is what the best anthropology does, which is you took a concept that sometimes seems quite obvious to us, then shows that behind it, there's massive amounts of contradictions, different narratives, different points of origin, and blended it all together. The first thing I wanted to just say is that I wouldn't, you said you're worried you're doing salvage ethnography. Well, I want to point out something that you said recently to me when you read my work was just shift it into the past tense and stop worrying about it. <laughs> if you're concerned about that, it's okay to be in the, in the past tense, because we, we don't know how things are going to change into, into, into the future. And yeah, I mean, like the first thing that struck me that what you said very near the beginning of the talk where you said that the, the nature the problem with the word moderation is is really how do we define what counts as the middle and what and what sort of political work is that term doing so that made me think about um about the connections between uh between uh, moderation being moderate within western political ordering and being moderate in the West and being moderate in, in, in the Middle East and how those two things overlap and what political work that term is doing and to what extent is the term itself actually uh, sort of an empty signifier that can be filled and should we be using it as an analytic category at all? Is it a useful concept or is it just a, a really a big empty box? Well, I would definitely uh, not recommend using it as an analytical category at all. So my, my approach has been to treat it solely as a, uh, a sort of a, a, a type of discourse, a sort of a thing that exists in the social field, and then basically to see what it does. And I think that that's actually a much more interesting and fruitful way of approaching uh, the topic than trying to sort of define it 
Um, now, there may be that there is some way to uh, define moderation in a coherent manner. I'd be very interested if, if someone has a, a way of doing that. But I think a lot of the uh, attempts to do so have, have basically failed. Uh, and that the more interesting work is to ask, well, why is it that this concept that, that has so little meaning, nevertheless, uh, is so useful to people? And I think that that, yeah. that really sort of comes down to something about uh, the way in which uh, it's mapping uh, a whole bunch of very complicated ethical and political commitments onto this very simple seeming spatial metaphor mm. and allowing the conflation of a lot of different things uh, that uh, happen to be useful to the people to, who are doing that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, certainly we see that like in the, in the case of Syria, uh, what the notion of moderate does there and how Bashar al-Assad used that in a particular way in order to uh, delegitimize forms of opposition, 100% we see that it takes on a, a completely different meaning in different contexts. And on that point, by the way, the story about the hipster with uh, the facial hair, uh, facial hair, exactly the same story happened in Lebanon. So it's, uh, <laughs> it seems to be a region-wide phenomena that hipsters are being targeted for, be, for being uh, ostensible jihadis. And I remember whenever I would return uh, from Jordan when I was working at CBRL, I would always be cautious about having too much of a scraggly beard myself in case the border guards at Heathrow thought that perhaps I'd become a white jihadi and I was returning from, from Syria or something like this. And I was once subjected to extended questioning when I had a particularly scraggly beard. So maybe we can put it down to not having a, a moderate body, <laughs> like you suggest. Never and been I mean, a better like, time yeah. not to be able to, yeah. What, sorry? Never been a better time not to be able to grow facial hair, right? <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. And yeah, um, so yeah, I, I mean, like, I like that slide at the end where you brought up prevent and, and these sorts of things that we tackle in the UK, because obviously a lot of my, like, current research with, with activists trying to uh, help refugees settle in the UK and things like this, that they encounter that sort of prevent agenda. So I was wondering if you could talk like a bit more about the political economy around these tackling violent extremist workshops. Because to me, that's particularly interesting as a political anthropologist, um, what service it's doing there and how it maybe disconnects or where, where there are disjunctures between that and Islamic conceptions of moderation. Yes, yeah, so the, there's obviously, there's a lot of stuff being funded by the Jordanian government itself, uh, both through the religion, Ministry of Religious Endowments, but also through a whole bunch of NGOs that are supported by uh, the Jordanian monarchy. Uh, there's also a lot of international funding for this sort of stuff. So obviously USAID and the US State Department are big funders of this sort of stuff. Um, but it's not just uh, the US. Uh, Britain also is interested in uh, investing in this sort of stuff. Um, I was surprised actually that Germany has also uh, invested pretty heavily in this sort of stuff recently as well. Um, and it's not even just governments. There's also, uh, if people are familiar with, there's the NDI, uh, which is the National Democratic Institute and the National Republican Institute, which are basically arms of the uh, main American political parties. And they're also very interested in promoting this sort of work. Uh, and then the, the, the German political uh, parties have also recently begun to basically mimic this model and do the same thing. So there's the, the Friedrich Neumann Foundation, I believe it is, uh, and, and basically every German political party uh, has a sort of a named foundation that does this sort of work. So from the sort of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, which is of course for the left, to the uh, sort of the, the free uh, liberals and uh, the, the sort of the social democratic party, the SDP. Yeah. Um, so you have a sort of a very large number of these sort of international and local uh, NGOs that are basically then 
uh, chasing uh, a sort of a, a who's who of people who are seen as movers and shakers. They often come from somewhat well-connected families, but obviously they also have to be charismatic. They have to be good speakers. They have to be the kind of people who have you know, big social media followings. Um, and then there's basically an attempt to encourage them to attend various types of workshops. These are often at, held at the Dead Sea or in Petra or in other places. So you get to go uh, and you get to sort of take pictures of yourself doing these things. Uh, and you get to network with other people who are seen as sort of future leaders. Um, now, it's not exactly clear to me uh, that this is actually good for their political careers, particularly uh, or that this is actually in some ways not creating a big wedge between a lot of obvious um, political leaders uh, and the very people who they would normally represent by basically singling them out and associating them with institutions that may have uh, sort of a lot of suspicion about them amongst um, everyday people. Uh, and also, of course, getting them accustomed to consumption patterns and lifestyles that are not going to be readily legible to people within their communities. Mm -hmm. um, but I think especially what I found interesting was talking to some of the people who had kind of been through this system uh, and come out the other side and were really struggling to find work when they got into their 30s in particular, right? That basically there were a lot of jobs available uh, for people in their 20s to do this sort of work, uh, youth outreach, you know, you could make a sort of, a, for a 20 year old, you know, sort of very good money um, doing this sort of stuff, um, even, you know, sort of arranging, uh, even just sort of going to these events could be very profitable. Uh, but then when you got to 30 or 40, the, the jobs were basically reserved for primarily white foreigners. Uh, and this, of course, meant that it was a sort of a, a career dead end. Um, and it wasn't necessarily clear that these activities had actually prepared the people who had done these things to mm -hmm. move off into another line of work. So I think that there's a very interesting question about what all of these things are actually trying to accomplish. Now, in terms of what they actually do and the actual content, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, attempts. It's all very student-centered learning. It's uh, you know, the, the best of progressive pedagogy, a lot of role plays, uh, you know, sort of attempts to uh, uh, educate people about uh, Western political theory and Western political ideas um, being a big part of it. Um, whether or not this actually sticks and the way in which it, it sort of might trickle down into the community, I, I, again, I think that it's, it's not necessarily easy to say and in some ways actually um, these uh, sorts of workshops might not be very um, sort of effective at all mm. in any manner, really. Um, but that's sort of the that's sort of the the sort of the scene, and I can definitely expand on that if people are more. So what what do you what do you mean by detail. what do you mean by effective there, Jeff? You mean that they're that they aren't producing the the moderate subject that's intended. People are using them as a a source to get a bit of money, do the workshops, then leave and return, and not fully adopt the the, the sort of uh, position that that these workshops are intended for. Is that what we mean by uh, effective? Yeah, so I was thinking of that basically in the, in the terms of the organizers themselves. And so they're basically arguing that they can catalyze a, a sort of a, a large scale social transformation by targeting these particular uh, sort of figures within communities uh, and mm -hmm. having these sorts of events. Um, and it's not really clear to me that either the, uh, the, the sort of the programming itself or even the method of trying to target um, these sort of uh, local leaders is is a particularly effective way of going about any of that. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it might actually be be counterproductive in certain ways uh, to their goals. Um, but I mean, it's obviously it does transform the social field in some very interesting ways. It does create this very this very interesting semi networked kind of um, group of people within uh, Jordan who have these connections abroad and and also obviously reach into civil society in some interesting ways. 
um, and could use that platform for all sorts of things in the future. And, and of course, many of them do um, become uh, inveterate troublemakers, uh, at least in local politics in various ways, uh, and you know, sort of do interesting things. Um, but you know, again, it's it's sort of it's interesting how uh, this particular model of, of countering violent extremism uh, programming has become uh, you know, has has come to to sort of be, uh, capture the imagination of all of these organizations. Um, and of course, there's also provoked a sort of backlash. So I think now there is an increasingly an understanding that the way they're doing it, and especially the way they throw money around, might be uh, a bad idea and might actually be counterproductive. Uh, but I'm not really sure that they figured out a sort of a new model yet. Although yeah, I think in, in some ways there's yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting that when it, when it comes to things like prevent and countering violent extremism. That, that to some degree we could maybe think that these agendas were pioneered among Muslim populations in, 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 in the UK and now they've expanded to incorporate uh, environmental activists, communists, socialists, anti-fascist organizations, the designation of Antifa as a terrorist organization, that this, uh, that, that this notion while it, while, it, while it had a particular saliency within the Middle East and within Islamic communities has now expanded out to basically target anyone who uh, questions uh, the, the the sort of neoliberal order of things, and I I, th I think that's what's a, re a really interesting to look at those um, disconnects. And I was wondering, yeah, on that point, like uh, before, I think we should maybe move to uh, other people's questions soon. Um, but uh, prior to that, I was wondering, yeah, if you could talk like a tiny bit more about like how the Muslim Brotherhood are using this concept, because I thought that was particularly interesting. In some way, you could some way you could expand. Yeah, so um, like I was saying, I mean, this is this is something that I, I very quickly realized when I started doing my fieldwork. I mean, I'd always, I think, kind of been aware that this was, was I mean, it's even in the name of some of the parties, right, that they'll use the word wasat in, in the name of parties um, um, and, and various uh, literatures and things like that. But I, I, I wasn't uh, quite aware, and I found it quite ironic, actually, how much the concept was often associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, both as a way of... Uh, you know, sort of, and what was interesting about it was that it works both ways, that it simultaneously allows them to control their own activists and basically to police the boundaries of acceptable activism. Uh, but then at the same time, it also can actually be deployed very effectively as a form of moral suasion and policing against people who are seen as too liberal or too Western. Because mm -hmm. of course, there's no reason uh, per se why, why Western norms should be seen as moderate given how empty and devoid of meaning the concept is. It's very easy from the perspective of um, Middle Eastern society or sort of a, um, a devoutly Muslim society to say that uh, an overawed, you know, sort of respect for Western norms and values is itself a form of extremism. Uh, and that the appropriate thing to do would be to remember one's traditions and one's own religious faith, uh, and therefore to not become extreme in the sense of becoming too uh, enamored with the West. Yeah. That's really interesting, Jeff. Thank you. So, so are you still going to be continuing with this research? Is there more to be done? When yeah, do you I mean, field work? Because <laughs> what I mean, we're doing now in the wake of COVID-19 for field work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. I mean, I'm, I'm still very interested in values and the way in which uh, these, sorts of, uh, these sorts of concepts uh, help manage populations and uh, serve as tools of social control. Um, my, my current research has obviously uh, shifted a little bit because of just the nature of, uh, you know, the, the world around us, basically. So I'm, I'm definitely um, not really very optimistic about my ability to travel to Jordan anytime soon. So yeah. any research I do is going to have to be in collaboration with uh, people on the ground in Jordan who can help me do that. Yeah. Um, 
I'm currently uh, interested uh, to some degree though also in Jordan's COVID-19 response and the sort of values that have been mobilized in that, uh, of which uh, at least as far as I could tell, uh, moderation has not really figured unsurprisingly. Um, but I don't necessarily know that it won't emerge in new guises and that this more general interest of mine in uh, values and social control in um, the Middle East, I mean, I would actually assume that this is going to sort of all come out as I, as I start to explore uh, COVID-19 as a, as a sort of an ethnographic object as well. Um, I guess, I but, guess we, should, we should start moving yeah. to questions now because we're running out of time, I guess. But I'm presumably there'll be a moder uh, moderate um, webinars going on like this that you could just join online <laughs> for digital field work. Yeah. But okay, let's, let's start moving to questions. So if anyone wants questions, uh, just and type them in now. It's the Q&A box on the bottom next to record, share screen down on the bottom right in Zoom. And I'll read them out as they, as they come in. Jeff, have you got them open as well? Yep, yep, I'm looking at them. Okay, so the first question we have from Enam Elward is, how does your research relate to the specific social context locality in which it is conducted? He's got yeah, this multiple question, so we'll do the first one, then we'll do the, the next bit. Yeah, so I think that it's, it's very important that this is a very Jordan story in some ways because uh, the Hashemite monarchy has invested very heavily in promoting itself as a guardian of quote-unquote moderate Islam. Uh, so I think that there definitely is, is similar stories that you could tell about Egypt and Syria. Both of these countries have also mo mobilized the concept of moderation. Uh, even when Karadawi was writing in the 80s, he you know, had in some ways, I think, sort of claimed back the concept of moderation from the state uh, the Egyptian state, of course, that is to do so. Uh, and then, uh, as we've been discussing, right, in the Syrian case as well, uh, the idea of, of moderation has also been used to uh, great effect by the Syrian regime to sort of paint all opposition as unreasonable. Yeah. Um, and yet, I think that the way in which Jordan in particular has, has done it and the way in which they've, they've tried to promote it as um, not just a sort of a political intervention, but specifically as a religious invention, intervention is somewhat unique. Uh, and I think in particular, the way in which this has led to an increasing role for the Ministry of Religious Endowments in society, and especially uh, increasing control over uh, religious discourse throughout the country, especially through the standardization of weekly mosques, uh, mm. I'm sorry, weekly Friday sermons in the name of promoting moderation, uh, is something that is a little bit of a Jordan-specific story. And yeah. certainly the way in which uh, Jordan has tried to disseminate its own idea of moderation internationally is, I think, something that's a bit unique. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So we've got quite a lot of questions coming in. So let's move on to the next one from Gillian Schwedler. So the question is, and I was interested in this, it's a very good question. Uh, uh, are people talking, writing, reading more about moderation as a position? Or is it a process, or is it more a process of becoming moderate, regardless of the diverse ways the term is used? Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask something very similar about that, because I was wondering, you know, with, with your quite a significant part of your talk was given over to particular textual meanings, right? How far do those textual meanings connect to what people then do when they become moderate? Yeah, so I mean, what's interesting to me is that there's this spatial metaphor that sort of sits at the front. You know, it's, I think it's sort of anyone who speaks Arabic, their, their first thought when they hear these terms is a sort of a spatial metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, very quickly, there's a sort of a, a, a diversion into a lot of talk about affect and so it's a lot about, you know, and I think this comes out in the idea of being multidilt in particular, which is moderate in a certain sense, but it also means sort of easygoing, compassionate, you know, it's sort of a, sort of a good person, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. So it very quickly sort of becomes about ethics and affect and about how you present yourself about um, being kind about, you know, sort of arguing in a very particular way that's sort of constructive and supportive and not, you know, sort of aggressive. Uh, and then mm -hmm. that in turn gets sort of uh, becomes a sort of a political thing because the idea is that you have to then be a person in society who is sort of encouraging uh, greater social cohesion, certainly not promoting discord or fitna or whatever. Uh, and then this is where we, we sort of then get up to the, the sort of the more metapolitical discourse, which becomes about these different uh, political forces in society all trying to claim, no, we're actually the moderate ones. We're yeah. the ones who support social cohesion. And it's actually all of our enemies who are weakening social cohesion. Mm. When, and, when they, and when they start making those claims, do they refer back to text to say, no, this is the meaning, this is the real meaning of moderation. This is, so we are the authentic ones or from what basis do they make those claims to be the, 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 the true moderates? Yeah, that's actually a good point because I mean, the, the text kind of sits in the background, but the text doesn't actually, I think, help people contest at that level. So I think a lot of times it becomes, again, very much about affect and very much mm. about how one presents oneself. Yeah, yeah. And one sort of immediately discredits oneself by having an inappropriate affect in a lot of these conversations um, mm. or engaging in political behaviors that are seen at, at a sort of another, again, at this sort of meta level as not, you know, sort of conveying the affect of, uh, you know, sort of social cohesion and pro-sociality. Yeah. Okay, let's move. This next question, very good question as well. Um, uh, can you talk a bit more about the, how gender relates to discourses in moderation in the Middle East and women's position on that discourse? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the, uh, it, I think it is interesting actually how uh, there, there is a way in which, in a world in which almost all discourses uh, tend to hyper-police women and let men off the hook, that the, the discourse of moderation may be one of the few that does tend to target uh, men more than women, which I think is an interesting dimension of it. So I think that if you were, to, and I, I, I don't really have data to back this up, and actually this is something I should probably do. If you ask people to sort of paint a picture of someone who is extreme, uh, I bet that that picture would be masculine a lot of the time. Uh, and the ideas of aggression, uh, in, you know, sort of independence from social norms, mm. deviance, things like this would be oftentimes as well as well very heavily gendered as male. So I think mm. that is a very important point, one that I should probably, I should probably integrate more of a gendered analysis of all of this into things. Yeah. And the next question we have is about sp the spatial metaphor, directionality or somewhere in the middle, which I feel you've, you've touched on, but um, I don't know if you want to tackle that one a bit. Yeah, more yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, this, so, so this idea, I mean, it, it, if we go back to these original sources and we get kind of philological about it again, I think that there's uh, a tension between this idea of the middle uh, mm -hmm. and this idea of balance and straightness, right, which are not quite the same thing, although they are, they are both spatial metaphors. They are both kind of about uh, you know, this directionality towards a sort of a, a convergence or this idea of convergence. Again, I think that this, the, the sort of the idea of praying towards the Qibla is maybe an interesting way of conceptualizing this and, and maybe sort of very latent in all of this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there is a bit of a slippage even between the concepts of balance and straightness and balance and straightness themselves. And then this idea of the middle, right? Um, mm. And that there, there is a sort of a directionality to it, but sort of in this idea of convergence. Mm. Yeah, and I've got another question here is, uh, uh, how much do your conceptualizations, for this from Annie Evans, how much of your conceptualization as a moderation engage with minority religious groups in Jordan, such as Christians, 
and Shiite Muslims, both in terms of the theological belief, but also everyday practice. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, this is a very Muslim biased project in some ways. I mean, I did talk to Christians about this to some degree, uh, and they seem to uh, think of this as, as more of a Muslim thing. Mm. Um, I have not talked to any Shia in, in Jordan. Um, there's, there's not a lot of Shia in Jordan, and they've been keeping a very low profile since there was uh, um, some retaliatory violence, especially in the wake of uh, the war in Syria, the, there was a small number of Shia in uh, Karak who were basically driven out of the community. Uh, there was basically a Shia shrine actually there uh, that was basically shut down over tensions around the, the Syrian civil war. Uh, so it would be interesting actually to know what Shia have to say about this. I think that Shia are in a lot of ways kind of a latent, you know, sort of antagonist in a lot of this and that there is something distinctively Sunni about a lot of what I'm saying that I should have really specified better in my presentation, I actually kind of meant to specify that this was a very Sunni discourse. Um, but yeah, I think that's also a very important point. Yeah. So the next thing is more of a comment, which you can, I don't know if you want to respond to comments, but I think we'll just leave comments, comments off, but that will be stored and you can, you can look at it. Let's try and keep it to um, questions. So the next one. Okay, well, potentially off-topic question, but do you think that the return of the so-called Afghan Arabs that fought in the Soviet-Afghan war that came back bringing with them an extremist account of Islam? I'm not sure if that, I think that seems a bit off-topic, Jeff, if you don't want to answer that one. <laughs> Which one is this? This is Odetta Pizzini Grilli. Um, do you think that the return of the so-called Afghan Arabs that fought in the Soviet-Afghan war then brought back with them an extremist account of Islam? Oh, well, I mean, I think that, that definitely there was an, a, that a lot of this oh, does... Oh, sorry, it continues. And it put, that did, okay, never mind, sorry. <laughs> I'm getting confused by this technology, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm also, I'm, I'm trying to do too many things at once here. I apologize. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that um, the... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that, that, I don't know how much uh, the, the Hashemite monarchy was ever really in danger from, from anything really. Um, I've never really been one of these people who says that it's particularly precarious or particularly, you know, sort of hegemonic. I mean, I think that um, they've had some luck, uh, but I mean, a lot of, I think that the sort of the, the persistence of the, of the Hashemite monarchy has a lot to do with the fact that uh, they haven't uh, run a foul of the geopolitical uh, objectives of the United States and Europe. Uh, and uh, as a result, they've always enjoyed a lot of patronage from them. And that's provided them with a lot of money that's uh, allowed them to uh, give people job opportunities, you know, in countering yeah. violence extremist workshops or otherwise, or in the military or other places, uh, which has generally made Jordan a, a sort of a pretty uh, you know, calm place for the last 20 or 30 years comparatively to other countries around it. Yeah. Okay, we've got a, a long one here, but it seems a very, I'll, I'll read it out because it ends in a, a question from y Yazan Dukhan. Thanks, Jeff, for this interesting presentation. This is a very fascinating, timely project. Listening to your presentation, I'm struck by how, how an important but difficult distinction seems to lurk behind the contemporary concerns around moderation, namely that between being a Muslim and being an Islamist. What your presentation seems to suggest is that there is a certain unease about the difficulty to distinguish between a Muslim from being an Islamist. 
in a sense, an extremist Muslim is a threat because she or he can be an extremist Islamist. Is this perhaps less about the Middle East versus the West and more about how the state construes and tries to manage religion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely true. And uh, I mean, we could even sort of take it a little bit further, maybe, and say that looking at both uh, the way that the concept of moderation uh, circulates in the West and the way it circulates in countries like Jordan is that it's, it's about the way that the state tries to manage populations more generally, right, yeah. um, and their beliefs more generally. Um, so I think that that's a really good point, yeah, that there's this, there's this question about the relationship between being an Islamist and being a Muslim, which is very important here. Mm. Uh, and this idea that uh, you can sort of cross a line from uh, basically being uh, devoted and committed religiously, but then sort of there's this point where it becomes derogatory to the point where uh, maybe you are actually sort of weakening the internal cohesiveness of the community. And then that, at that point, you become a threat to, uh, you know, sort of the community in a sense, which is, which is seen as antithetical to the point of, of Islam from most people's perspective. Yeah, I think that point's really particularly interesting is to show how that these arguments are really around, uh, around like trying to control a population's belief in order to maintain a particular uh, status quo or whatever, and to show that there's nothing particularly exceptional here about Islam. It's just, this is one set of beliefs that the state deems to be dangerous. And also, it could also deem other sets of belief, for instance, Extinction Rebellion, to be dangerous. And that that's a nice way to sort of de-exoticize and de-orientalize all of these discourses and show that they're ultimately part of this sort of uh, governmentality, if you want to call it that, an attempt to, to manage population. I think it's a very interesting point. Okay, let's keep going. Look, Miriam says hello to us both. And <laughs> she says, uh, you uh, touched on how the more present idea of moderation also relates to global capitalism and consumption patterns. I was wondering if you could more, if you could elaborate more on whether you think there's a connection to the idea of moderation and a broader understanding of globalizing neoliberalism in regard to the containment of, 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 of oneself or the self. I think, yeah, I think that's also a very interesting question. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I definitely think that it's, it's, I mean, in some ways I, I tend to view the whole sort of Salafi phenomenon as very much about consumption, about wearing the right clothes. I mean, that it is sort of like a subculture in a lot of ways, uh, but just one that happens to take its uh, cues from seventh century Arabia rather than say, uh, you know, sort of listening to punk rock and dyeing your hair red or whatever. Uh, and I think in that regard, that it's, it's no wonder then that especially when uh, political leaders, both in the opposition and in government, see these new sorts of subcultures emerging that are very much based around consumption, that then that's going to make their idea of dangerous dissent also be shaped around ideas of consumption, which I mm. think is in particular why maybe the beard becomes this sort of key shibboleth. Mm. Uh, that's very yeah. That makes a lot. That makes a great deal of uh, of sense. Okay, here we go. Next one, we have Lucy Shooten, who's a doctoral student at the University of Edinburgh, and she asks, "Do you see the concept of moderation uh, as related to the initiatives for interfaith dialogue, particularly in Christian-Muslim dialogue?" Ah, good question. Dialogue both internally and externally, as they have been promoted by the government through its, its institutions. So how, I guess that's the question is, how does it, this relate to, um, to the, the sort of interfaith attempts? Because I, I know that they are, you know, in the region that I work in Lebanon, that also has a big project. 
Ocean yeah, yeah. So, so Jordan Irish. being so overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim is not necessarily the most, uh, you know, sort of fertile ground for the yeah. interfaithing phenomenon. Uh, but there is definitely a royal center for interfaith dialogue. And I went and I talked to them. Uh, and it was interesting how uh, they, they did in some ways mobilize the concept of uh, moderation. Although I have to say what was particularly weird about that experience was I ended up going to this seminar uh, that was held there that involved a sort of a Lebanese philosopher uh, lecturing a bunch of people about uh, the work of uh, basically Gadamer's hermeneutics for a audience uh, of uh, people who worked with one of the German uh, political parties groups. So I, I thought that was a very, very funny way of trying to counteract extremism is to sort of get them to read Gadamer and sort of... Uh, uh, yeah. Okay, we got on to R, almost finishing exactly on time. I think you've got, you got three minutes. And the final question from Tariq Tell is, uh, how does moderation connect to the kind of middle-class piety documented by the likes of Sarah Tobin? And then, of course, we can add, add to that Sabah Mahmoud, I guess. How does it connect to that sort of body of ethnographic uh, literature? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the kind of people that uh, Sarah Tobin is working with are adjacent to some of the people that I'm, I'm talking about here. Um, so obviously, Sarah Tobin worked with uh, the main competitor to the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, Islamic Bank, right? So um, they're, they're sort of uh, interested in, in sort of, again, they want to portray themselves as being just a bit more moderate than the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Um, and so, for instance, again, uh, consumption patterns would be very important here. Sarah Tobin has a lot of very interesting discussions, especially of the women at that bank and why they choose to work there, how they like the fact that they get to wear a little bit of makeup, uh, more makeup than they would be allowed to wear if they worked for the Muslim Brotherhood Islamic Bank. Uh, but at the same time, and I guess this is a moderation in action, right? But th at the same time, they get to wear the hijab, which yeah. they would not be able to wear at a secular bank, right? So I think similarly, we can kind of see how this policing of the body of consumption patterns uh, and the way in which that is, is entered becomes epitomized in the concept of moderation. I think, I think we're definitely dealing with uh, a sort of a, the same social field as Sarah Tobin's dealing with, for sure. Thank you to both our speaker and our chair, Philip. It was a fascinating and illuminating um, uh, conversation and uh, really I think yes uh, thanks also to everybody who asked questions I know we didn't quite get to all of them and there were a few comments but we will uh, pass all those questions on, on to our speakers and thank you for allowing this conversation uh, to continue um, I'm going to do the final little piece about CBRL again of course just to say if you enjoyed this seminar, um, this webinar today. Um, please join us again in future. Look at our website for future events. Um, and we've had quite a range, everything from archaeology to anthropology um, uh, and uh, history, some fascinating things on the mandate um, and on COVID as well. Uh, so visit our website at cbrl.ac.uk, join our mailing list. And you can also support our work by becoming a member. So thanks very much again to everybody. And uh, until next time, bye from a man and uh, Exeter and uh, Bath.